Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon all of our listeners. Welcome once again here in Drive Time Show. You're listening to Aniko Rahman. And I have another co presenter with me here in the studio of Voice of Islam, Dr. Tariq Bajwa. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Assalam, peace be upon you and all our listeners as well. Today, as per our routine, we will be discussing another two important topics. In each hour, we will be covering one topic, and for that, we will be having guests who will be speaking on those particular topics and will give us insight. and will have more understanding of those topics so in first hour we'll be discussing nhs dentistry a thing of the past we will just discuss we'll explore we will in we'll ask question from the guest to understand what's going on in nhs dentistry and how that can be better and what I, what kind of problems uh NHS dentistry is facing and how we can resolve it you can also call us and uh, share your views on 0208-687-7878 and tweet at voice of islam uk the holy prophet of islam muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him stated and in a way prophesied that there is no disease that allah has created except that he also has created its treatment and we see around us there's so many diseases but god has given us treatment that god has created treatment for those illnesses for those disease and as i mentioned we particularly discussing dental care or dentistry that what kind of problems are there how is affecting the health and how we can overcome all those problems dental care an integral component of overall health is undergoing a critical examination in the united kingdom as concerns grow regarding the accessibility and viability of nhs dentistry the national health service nhs plays a pivotal role in providing dental services to the population but recent challenges have sparked debates about the sustainability and effectiveness of this essential healthcare service in this show we'll delve into the key issues surrounding nhs dentistry its current state and potential solutions to ensure a continued and robust dental healthcare system for the nation NHS if we discuss you know, NHS NHS dentistry holds as I said vital role in ensuring equitable access to dental care for all citizen and it serves as a crucial avenue for preventive measures early intervention and overall oral health management and general practitioners in NHS dentistry play 
a, a pivotal role in diagnosing and addressing dental issues contributing to the well-being of the population even though they are putting their effort nhs putting its effort trying to provide the facilities which we need but still there are some challenges a major challenges you know nhs dentistry is facing and is struggling to provide timely and accessible dental care reports indicate prolonged waiting times for appointments hindering individuals from receiving essential preventive and routine dental services and which concern is you know quietly concerns have also emerged with question about whether the nhs dental system is equipped to meet the evolving oral health needs of the population and we see in our daily life sometime we have to go through nhs through dental care and the waiting time is very long even though all kind of facilities has been provided on the other hand the challenges are there nhs dentistry is struggling to provide timely and accessible dental care so these challenges underscore the need for a critical assessment of the existing framework the challenges uh, confronting nhs dentistry is you know multifaceted ranging from issues of accessibility and quality to financial viability and technological lag the aging infrastructure which is very important to discuss and an increasing demand for dental services compounds the complexity of delivering effective and timely dental care so we have one of the co-presenters is dr himself he uh probably would add few other points into it that how you know it, it we are, we are looking the dentistry especially we discuss the dentistry of course there are other things the other aspect of nhs which we discuss over the time but as today we are discussing dentistry tarik dr tarik bajwa what would like to add in, in this regard yeah i think it's a big issue nowadays uh, nhs uh, even the gp services you see that the doctors are uh, on strike for for a long time now and time and again the junior doctors have to come out just to say that you know they they uh, can't survive within the current payment what they are receiving and it is it is some sometimes it is even less than the the minimum wages they are being paid and they are qualified ones they have uh, spent years of education and experience yet when it comes out to the services and uh, they are the ones who provide the best of the services and we have experienced that during covid-19 pandemic as well um the cost of living crisis um which is uh, evident at the moment i mean everybody is suffering from that and because of the inflation everybody um is getting involved but particularly mm. the dentistry side the nhs dentistry yes of course i mean i would agree with the topic that it it is going to be the thing of the past because nothing is being done about it there are so many inbuilt pro- uh, problems within the nhs there is you know the funding squeeze is one of the major issue and i can tell you that uh, nhs dental services received more than 500 million pounds less in real terms in 2021 22 than in 2014 and 15 
Um, looking back at the history of the NHS, uh, it was uh, 1991 and 92. You know when. Um, there were major changes in the in the contract NHS contract, where they would uh, provide a certain um, certain things. What they do, they would provide on the NHS, whereas the others they could charge. So they sort of partially became private. And um, currently, um, the waiting list have gone up because they don't have adequate staff numbers um, to cope with the uh, the demand of the, the people. Uh, as you earlier mentioned, that there is a lot of uh, uh, development which has taken place in the private sector, but it has not been incorporated into the NHS sector. Um, um, you need the advanced technology to be used in the NHS services provided by the dentists as well. But of course, there is a limit what they, they can offer in NHS at, uh, you know, for example, the children, they are free, the pregnant ladies are free for one year after the birth of the child as well. But what, what do they get out of it? And in addition, there is another problem with the dentistry is that the prices have been inflated so much and that is because of the insurance. Mm. The insurance, uh, of course, covers you, but when um, they are billed, they compare with somebody who has to to, to pay privately, and it is it is impossible that they can uh, pay privately. I can give you a few examples, like um, myself. I can I can give examples from my own family that uh, you know myself. If I um, suffered from gingivitis, this which is a common. Uh, like illness of the of the gums, and for getting that treated, you know, you you go. Um, if you go on an NHS, of course, I mean the, the easiest or the cheapest treatment you get is that you go to a dental hygienist. The hygienist will charge you mm -hmm. around like sixty pounds, and if if it, is, it takes like um, one hour, you know, half an hour, sixty, is, it will go to one twenty. But that is the cheapest option. If you see a doctor, you you pay the consultation charge. Then you pay, if they have to treat it, the doctor's charge, they they are allowed, they start from 3,000 pounds and then they go on to up to 12,000 pounds. And, and it is impossible for a man like me, I I work as a, as a doctor and I have a reasonable income, but I can't really afford to pay that much just to, to get my teeth tra uh, treated. Whereas it is a basic human need that, that the teeth, they are essential part of your body. They need to be looked after. They need to be, uh, the, the prevention is a major, you know, the, there is a major role of prevention of disease as far as the, the teeth are concerned, particularly the children. As, mm -hmm. as uh, regards the children, I can tell you that, uh, uh, yes, of course, they, they, they do get regular checkups from, from your dentist if you are lucky enough to find a, a dentist who you are registered with. Um, otherwise, usually it is it is becoming more and more difficult to, um, to find a, a dentist who would be able to register you on right. the NHS. Of course, as a private patient, they don't mind it. But, um, and I, I can give you another example. The um, Even yesterday, my granddaughter who needs a dental treatment because some of her teeth, they are um, like they are not on the right place and her jaw is not big enough to to take all the uh, 32 teeth. So these two are inside. And on NHS, what they are offering is that the, they can take out the, ex, the teeth which are inside. Mm. So they have to be taken out and then um, she has to, to live without 
those uh, those two teeth mm-hmm. and that is what is nhs offering whereas if you go privately and she has to pay 7000 pounds for that is that th- they will put something insert something so that they can expand mm-hmm. um, the jaw so it can take those teeth in and she can have still have those all the teeth so this is this is only a few examples i'm giving you um that uh, you know nhs uh, because of the 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 major problem is the funding the uh, of course uh, the government um, is putting money into it mm. but it's not putting the money into the right places <clears throat> that is one of the oh, problems right. a lot of money is going into the management a lot of money is going to be the uh, to going to the executives um in the people who are sitting in the big offices and uh, they can um, uh, you know and, and of course we are we're going to have a few guests and they will uh, of course uh, you know that they, they will acknowledge that that this is happening and um, of course i i think we have our first guest is it <coughs> yes indeed uh, you were much right what you said and think everybody has some story to share of course all our listeners can call us on 02086877878 now we're going to go to our first guest dr atkins long standing friend and a spokesperson of the oral health foundation worked for many years in nhs contracts and was a tutor at manchester dental hospital with a particular interest in restorative dentistry he was or he has provided mobile dental surgery in tanzania along with three of his team providing voluntary work i welcome him in the show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and thank you much for joining us today good afternoon how are you i'm fine thank you i hope you're well as well i'm very well thank you to start off uh, dr atkins what challenges have dentists faced with the current nhs dentistry system i think it's massive i i i personally been an nhs dentist for 25 years and it's probably the biggest difficult time in dentistry that i've realized over the past 3 years um it, it there is many factors with regards to dentistry we, we we need a new contract which the government recognizes mm-hmm. we've just obviously been through like the rest of the world the covid experience and the general population has changed a lot of their views on aesthetic dentistry there's been a massive increase in aesthetic dentistry so patients are wanting more aesthetical white teeth and straight teeth and uh, crowns and bridges and things there is a massive shortage of for the workforce so we've been through brexit and i think the stats was over 20% of um the dentists the dental registers within the uk were non uk um registrants who often are not finding it easy to come and work in the uk anymore so there's many factors that affect this this area the key thing to remember with dentistry is dentistry is massively preventable so if you brush your teeth correctly twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste you cut out the sugary snacks and smoking and you can massively reduce 95% of the dental disease we have in our mouths so there is a real need for pushing dentistry down a uh, with a nhs contract it's fully pre- on a preventable um slant so w- that patients are responsible for their own mouths and we are my job as a dentist is to educate for that preventative journey because we can heal these diseases 
So it's a massive, it's a massive complex journey with the NHS. You're very much right. Um, I think <laughs> the awareness is the key. So can you discuss any notable changes or developments in NHS dental care? Oh, dentistry, NHS dental care has massively evolved, even in the 20 years that I've been a NHS dentist. When I first qualified, we used to get three or four patients a week where I would take all the teeth out um, because they had their teeth were not savable, and mm. we would give them dentures. Now, dentistry has, is the NHS dentistry is now very complex so the people are keeping their teeth for longer so we can now save a lot more teeth than we would historically the the pressures that we have on the nhs system are access and volume and numbers so we're still managing the post-covid access to dentistry and there's a massive dearth of actual access for emergency care throughout the country so there is a really big issue with the postcode lottery so if you are in certain areas of the country, there's a, what we call the dental desert where patients simply cannot access NHS services. Hmm. So, so how do these changes impact both dentists and patients in the community? It's a real stressful environment mm-hmm. as, a, as a dental professional. You, you, you feel really sorry for my profession. You just want to help people and they want to work with their patients to make sure the preventative journey is occurred so we've worked with our patients as i say to make sure they're brushing the teeth twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste and spending that time with patients on a preventative message and patients it's that educational journey of even if you can't access an nhs dentist don't wait until you have a toothache issue because if you're following the preventative message and you can go on the dentalhealth.org website and find a lot of the preventative messages on there that we can work with our patients remotely so we can make sure they're getting a preventative disease which slows everything down, which I think your past caller was talking about, periodontal disease. There's lots of information on there on the preventative side of it. So making sure you're brushing your teeth, making sure you're brushing between your teeth, making sure you use the correct tools because what may work in one patient's mouth, for example, floss, may not work in another mouth. So we find the correct way to brush between your teeth it's it's really important to if you are a patient to take a step back and think how can i prevent this disease progressing very much right so so in your opinion what improvements could be made to enhance dental care accessibility for the public for me the biggest thing is education and when to get a dentist how to get a dentist how often we should be going to the dentist there's there's Mm. some really good research out there on the really healthy patients maybe even need to see us every two years but we need a contract that is reflecting on that educational program because it can take it can take me 40 minutes to give a patient a really good oral health which is why we need to use our dental nurses our hygiene therapists to complement so it's a it's a dental health team now rather than the dental health dentist if you see what i mean so it, it, the way i've always talked to my patients is that if you're seeing me you're having something really serious done that we don't really want to have done. But if you're seeing the rest of my team, you're doing a really good job and we're maintaining, keeping these things simple and small because we've got to think about teeth for a long time. So we've got to evolve the NHS to really focus on, on that journey because I think there is some really good benefit as a dental health team that we can do rather than just a dentist on their own doing the historical drilling and filling, which we we don't need to do as much these days. 
All right. Uh, one of the thing, uh, Dr. Atkins, of course, the technology, uh, it's a new technology in every sector. So how yeah. has technology played a role in reshaping dental practices in light of changing or, you know, changes to NHS dentistry? Oh, it's a really good question. Dental te- and technology is affecting the whole of the health industry. We can use um, artificial intelligence within the um, general practice now, catching early disease when it's really, really early. We can use, for example, the electric toothbrushes now these days, um, they can track where the patient's brushing correctly. So they can educate. So there's some really good apps um, done. I think Philips do a really good one, so do Oral-B, um, that actually educate the patient that can even... I can give a patient an electric toothbrush and I know there's one of the Sonicare ones will actually email me back telling me where the patient's not brushing correctly. So there's some okay. really exciting technology, technological things, which to be fair, probably will make me obsolete one day, um, which is great for disease reduction. We also look at scanning patients' teeth now rather than taking impressions. We do um, clear aligners which straighten people's teeth, which can be done remotely. There's lots and lots of technological advances using the dentistry um, in the dentistry forum that is making a massive difference to our patients especially with education there's some really good educational things which my big passion is behavioral change so getting patients to understand and take ownership of their mouths because when it comes down to it even my young children know if you brush your teeth correctly twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste, you make sure you're brushing between your teeth, you reduce or get rid of processed food and sugar in your teeth, you're really not going to come and visit me, which is brilliant because I can focus on those hard-to-reach groups and special needs patients that is really where the NHS should be focusing. Uh, Dr. Atkins, uh, thank you for your information you have provided. I, I'm a GP myself and I've experienced recently that Lots of patients are coming and asking for prescribing antibiotics mm. because they've got like some kind of gingivitis, and mm. they what they say is that they can't get a dentist to see or not you know not uh, uh, quick enough basically. Mm-hmm. So so they they want antibiotics to be prescribed. So what is your you know what is happening? Is it is it true that the dentists are not available or is it? Is it just that they are saving a visit to dentists because they can't afford to pay their fees? I think the difficult journey is we've got, I've worked with a lot of local doctors and the doctors, if they had an issue, would actually phone. It's that relation. There's, a, there's multifactorial. So for example, I would know all my local doctors in the areas and they'd, say, they'd phone me up and say, Ben, look, I've got a patient here. Do you mind seeing them? And I, and I would get them in. So there's a, there's a professional barrier that you and I are responsible for in having that communication. I will throw that um, question back and ask as as you're a, a GP yourself, do you know your local dentists? Because it's it's a really good journey that we can do as professionals to have those conversations. Because you know the patients you want to see. Do you have you met your local dentist? Yes, of course we know you know who is there in in our area. Um, mm. But uh, you know they they are having this issue that people are you know they they can't. Um, get registered on NHS, and uh, they, these are people who can't afford actually to, um, I think to pay the a, fees. It's a really good, interesting point because we have uh, understanding who pays for dental fees is really, really important. There's a, a form, I think it's called the E111 form, that you patients can get that assesses their need for payments of fees, and often we're not available uh, understanding those. So with regards fees if you're exempt or you're means tested you don't pay for 
And anyway, so it's, it's often from the start educate those patients try to reduce as a patient understanding the fees it's really worth accessing the nhs um education sites on what dental fees what you do actually for because i think one of your callers said before about paying 60 pounds to see the hygienist on the nhs well that actually isn't quite right i'm checking those figures out because why wouldn't nhs journey out so the difficult part with understanding often we'll often patients will often come to the GP because it's free. So that that's often the reason where they've come to the dentist and we have there are emergency dentists and they will I used to run the out of hours in Merseyside and Cheshire. And mm-hmm. patients would often come to see us and they say, No, we're not paying for you because the GP will, will pay it for free. So they then call you guys out. I had a really good relationship with my GP out of hours services and we used to have discussions. It's, it's funny when it's really important to understand the payment structures because the local GPs can get really quite angry. And I've worked with my local LMCs or the, uh, as, as they were back in the day um, to have a strategy. So it's what is a classic emergency to signposting for your reception team to make sure they go to the right places. Because if it, uh, NHS dentistry is a truly means tested service and for example in london i know you guys phone from down there there's a very good out of hours service there so it's understanding that access and how to access those services is signposting is critical and working together as medical professionals is, is very very critical and there's some really good stories out there about that but it's education of a lot of it comes back to signposting and education yeah, I, I think that there are some like um, loopholes in that, uh, you know, the, these forms, which, you know, because they, um, uh, I think people who are earning a little bit, which is, which takes them beyond, you know, getting a tax credit mm, or yeah. something, they are the ones who suffer because they, they are like in, in the middle where they, they are not able to pay yet. They are supposed to pay and they are not free because of their, their conditions. That's, that's really interesting because what yeah. happens is there is a, a form you can fill out and those prices will be reduced according to your levels of income. So there is a system in place for that. And often we don't know. You know, the, the general public would not know about that. So it's worth speaking to your general public. Say, look, do you have the exemption forms? And they'll give you a form. You'll fill it out. And where historically you might have paid £250, it might drop down to £120 because it'll be means tested. Mm-hmm. So, and often... It's a real challenge to negotiate. I mean, I'm, you know as well as I know, negotiating NHS systems is possibly the hardest thing we do. All right. One thing we earlier t- talked about, the technology. You know, do you have the same technology used for private patients which is used for NHS patients, or is there a difference? Oh, it's, it's a real challenge with regards to that because and it, um, it depends what it's for. And I always used to change this between my NHS and my private patients I'd say look NHS is there for more of an aesthetical journey it's more for the looks of your teeth NHS is there for health Mm -hmm. so you will get more people paying for some very very expensive aesthetical treatments so there's some really complex technological stuff out there and it's really important that we do the preventative stuff with it on the NHS because if you prevent disease you don't have to do it it's very very simple so it's it's, it's the most cost effective journey so I would always say to my patients, look, take a step back and educate yourself on the preventative journey, brushing yourself, t- brushing your teeth twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste, 
making sure you're using an electric toothbrush, making sure you're brushing between your teeth, and that technology can be massively advantageous to you. There is even gamification shoot 'em up things that you can get your children to use on your um, iPhone that my children absolutely love, and it makes such a difference. They ask me, can I go and brush my teeth now? So you're learning what technology is for what. Of course, there's some phenomenally expensive um, kits which you can use on the private market. But when it comes down to it, the uh, toothpaste from an own brand toothpaste from a supermarket is really what the NHS should be all about, educational journey. So we don't often need the ridiculously um, expensive kits, which can be forty or £50,000 for a fancy scanner or what have you. You don't need those on the NHS. However, in certain circumstances, we do. So we do have expensive kits on the NHS. I mean, the dental chair can be forty, fifty thousand pounds and whether it's private or NHS, you can get very expensive things for everything. So it's understanding what that kit is being used for and why you're using it is a, is a really journey. And dentistry is an expensive world, unfortunately. Yeah, what, what about the children? I mean, children um, uh, who are born with maybe that their teeth are not in line, they are like, uh, you know, abnormally located and they need a treatment and sometimes it's very complicated treatment and the parents, they can't afford uh, to, to you know, get through those treatments and NHS only offers the extraction and nothing else. So um, I, I, I just feel that, you know, the, the, these children, they we, we are supposed to look after them and uh, why they are being offered that, okay, you can get this treatment for £7,000. Otherwise, you will have to, you know, we, we can just do the extraction and then, you know, you have to live without a um, couple of teeth. So um, I think it, it's, it's very difficult because we've got, I can't comment on individual cases, but we have a needs assessment for crowded teeth or crooked teeth within the NHS to a certain point. Um, so, and those needs assessments are done by your dentist or they're done by the orthodontist with a referral. So if your dentist says, we can't have this on the NHS, you can still request a referral for, for an orthodontic opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is always, it's called an index of treatment need. So some crowding, I've got crowding on my lower teeth myself personally, and I'm, that's, that's not going to affect my life. It doesn't stop me smiling. Whereas mm-hmm. some people, my children's teeth, their canine teeth is really crowded and it's, they will look horrendous if we don't sort it out. They would qualify for the NHS treatment. Okay. So there is very advanced treatment done available on the NHS, but you have to be... It, you wouldn't personally want your, your tax money being spent on a slight twisted tooth, which really won't make a blind bit of difference to a patient's life. Or we could save, uh, do a, a, I don't know, a, a cardiac surgery on a patient and, and it would save their life. So we've got to think about balance, but I do understand it with a, with a parent when you go, oh, do you know what, they want their perfect smile. So that's when the private journey would come in, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Okay, interestingly, I mean, you have been, you have worked in Tanzania, haven't you? Sorry? You have worked in Tanzania as well? Um, no, we sent our our dental team. I personally haven't, but our our um, our some vast staff went to Tanzania. Yes. Oh, all right, okay. Because I have myself worked in Tanzania, so I thought that maybe we can talk about what what is the difference <laughs> between the work in Tanzania dentistry. Because there, I was working as a surgeon, but some people would come. Oh, can you extract my teeth? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think I think we've got one dentist 
per say I'm going to guess these stats or people don't hold me to about 4,000 people in the UK mm-hmm. whereas in Tanzania is one to 100,000 people yeah so the, you the, can imagine it's a different world different world yeah altogether yeah yeah but looking at them you know we are thankful whatever we have Absolutely. and <laughs> as long as you know it is available it's why the NHS is so important it's why the NHS is so important and we we can't abuse it yeah great thank you very much uh, dr atkins it was nice talking to you in details pleasure, and uh, you Anytime. have gone to the details and thanks for that my pleasure speak to you soon okay bye 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 so that was dr atkins very interesting and very uh, in detail talk uh, with the, with his personal experience with the nhs and the private um you know treatments which are available uh, in nhs of course uh, there is uh, crisis in NHS dentistry at the moment and uh, it is something to be highlighted because you know somebody needs to look at it and do something about it now otherwise our future generations are going to to suffer and uh, of course NHS as such uh, even in the general practice even in the um, uh, sector the general sector specialist sector all of them they the particularly the junior doctors they um the policies need to be sorted out the contract needs to be renewed the uh, i think the the money should be put into the right place um that is what is going to work because they need more staff they need more um technology to come in into nhs uh, having said that there is no doubt that nhs is still one of the best services in the world which is provided particularly in an emergency you are dealt with without any discrimination nobody asks you you know what color you are what creed what religion you are and that is the greatest thing about nhs indeed uh, you are much right dr ikbajwa as dr atkins mentioned that you know cleanliness is very important to brush your teeth twice a day and that's what islam teaches and that's what the uh you know advice of the holy prophet peace be upon him to brush your teeth regularly and that's what he himself used to do one of the thing you know he said once that if i would have been you know given the advice that i would have given this advice to teeth your brush uh, you know after every prayer is five times a day but at least he said twice a day is very important this you know to do do to clean your teeth in the morning and in the evening and that's what dr atkins as well mentioned which already is in the, in the islam to take care of your teeth it's better for you is you know more healthy breathe you uh, clean breathe and uh, you know it's better for your teeth and the most important thing the, the the saying of the holy prophet peace be upon him we should always remember that cleanliness is half of the faith so if we are making sure that we are taking care what god has given to us and we are cleaning it definitely we can protect ourselves protect our teeth from you know uh, getting in that condition where we have to visit a doctor the dentist and sometime because we we haven't taken care of it for a long time we have to go for serious uh, surgery you know and sometimes gets very difficult and we don't get uh, a appointment or right time when is needed and it's is sometimes is very painful and as dr tariq bajwa was mentioning one of the incident and same thing happened uh, in my surroundings in my family whenever you need a treatment it's not possible because you can have a very uh, you know basic treatment but you cannot get that pain fix immediately and i think for that reason we should take care of our 
teeth on a regular basis. Right, Imamonik, I think we have uh, we have another angle to, to look at, and we have mm. uh, for that we have our uh, next guest, who is Dania Bushra Chaudhary. She's a final year dental student. Let's let's see what she has to say. Welcome, uh, Dr. Bushra, and thanks for coming on the show today. Hello, Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, my first question to you is. How has the landscape of the NHS dentistry changed over the years? I, I think you must have seen through your student years, and you are in final year. So what, what's happening? Um, yeah, so it definitely changed a lot, even over just my past few student years, um, especially because of COVID, which has had a really, really big impact on um, NHS dentry, dentistry specifically. Um, so even patients now will come in and, um, give comments and mention how it's so difficult to find a dentist, um, how so many practices have like reduced how much NHS dentistry they're doing and people aren't really taking on new patients. So it's definitely um, something everyone's quite, kind of struggling with and that was kind of made worse by the pandemic. But um, even before there were, so dental services have been available throughout the NHS since it was created in 1948. But because dentists aren't employed by the NHS, they, just, they kind of operate independently. They can choose when they want to, um, just how much NHS treatment they want to provide, which is where it gets a bit difficult. Um, as when their funding kind of gets cut by the NHS, they kind of just go more towards private uh, dentistry instead, which is causing issues for a lot of people who can't afford private dentistry as much. So that's, that's how it's changed quite a lot recently. But... Um, I think people are still having issues because there's been a lot of there's been a lot of pressure to try and get them to change how they make NHS dentistry operate. As right now, they pay dentists per unit of work that they do, which is kind of encourages dentists to be more over-treat patients and not focus on preventative dentistry as much as it would be good to, and it would prevent a lot of treatment having to be done. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I can understand that. And uh, but, but I was just thinking that I was, uh, um, in in our days, I, I don't know what is the current situation, but the people who who who, who got the maximum marks, they would uh, prefer to go into medicine rather than dentistry. And the, and the the ones who had a less marks, they would decide that okay, let's go to the dentistry. But I think with the financial um, sort of uh, uh, attraction now, people would be more likely to go into dentistry rather than. Um, going into the, um, uh, the the medicine. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it has become um, a lot more popular as obviously we, we've all kind of seen in the news with junior doctors especially and just doctors in general not getting um, good hours, not getting good enough pay for what they're doing um, and then kind of all the strikes and the protests that they've done to kind of increase that. Whereas, yeah, like, I was kind of mentioning before with the the dentistry side of it because there's a lot more scope for going into private it can people's pay and finances are a lot more better in dentistry which is yeah definitely one of the reasons I think that's contributed to um, more people wanting to go into dentistry um, also there the issues with dentistry is that there are the number of places in the country are capped mm-hmm. as they obviously they want to they don't want to have too many de- dental trainees compared to the population. But um, 
yeah, once again, it's, it's a bit it's a bit debated because people also have issues with how the training places are distributed across across the country. Um, like, there's only two um, dentistry schools in London. There's two in the southwest, um, and there's six in the north. But there's absolutely none in the east of England. So then, it's like it's very difficult to keep the workforce in remote areas, and that's why a lot of dentistry there is decreased like the quality has decreased a lot but yeah i do think it's becoming a lot more popular which is good but yeah nhs dentistry would be nicer yeah it explains that there is a shortage of dentists and of course i mean that's a real one but uh, do you think there are any specific challenges that have led to the perception of the nhs dentistry as being a thing of the past um yeah so i think with like I said, with concerns with the um, uh, remote areas and dentistry not being more accessible there, that's also one of the reasons why NHS dentistry, it's just become a lot more difficult for people to access because a lot of practices are choosing to go private because they're not getting as much funding from the NHS. I think the main thing where it started to decline was in COVID when obviously for a few months, all dental treatments were stopped except really big emergencies and then the government had to cut funding so when a lot of practices went private from that they realized that they could just channel more money and a lot more people were i think people also nowadays have more aesthetic concerns with regards to their teeth as well people are a lot more aware of that as well so they're more willing to people who can afford it are more willing to pay privately to address their aesthetic concerns as well as their health concerns with their teeth. Um, but yeah, like in August 2022, 90% of the dental practices in the UK were not taking on any new adult patients. So it's kind of forced people to go towards the private side, which is, I think, a big reason why NHS dentistry is kind of being said it's a thing of the past. Um, and also there's been, for years, there's been pressure for them to change the dental system. And it's kind of just not happened, which is why I think it's also people are saying that there's not been enough change as society changed because they want people to they want them to focus on prevention with patients rather than treating them. But it's just not happening, yeah. Do you feel that um, you know? Of, of course, I mean, I mean the the solution we can see is that if you don't find the dentist, then it's better to 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 do some kind of pre- prevention so that you you don't go to that extent where you need a dental treatment. But is there any facilities or anything which is provided to general public that this is how you can prevent the dental disease? Um, yes, yeah, so I think they are trying to make it more of a thing and in going into schools and teaching kids very young rather than as they get older because it's harder to implement habits and learn things as you're older but it's just not happened to the scale that it should have because even now even after them a lot of lot of pressure to try and um focus on preventative it's a third or five-year-olds still suffer from tooth decay which is a completely preventable thing so it just shows how much there's a disparity between the education to prevent and actually having it. And then actually the most common reason for why children five to nine years old are admitted into hospital is having to need multiple extractions under general anaesthetic. 
So it just shows how significant it is even in children. And obviously these habits and these this oral health education then goes on into their adult life as well. And you see so many patients come in and you tell them something about changing their habits or how to brush or things that affect their teeth and they just they've just never heard it before. So it just shows how much there's it's not even up to the patients not implementing the habits, they just don't have the education to know how to prevent them. So I think we definitely need to emphasize on that more and focus on that more. That's good. Uh, Dania, just one last question. I think in, into our community, you know, when we were looking at alternate and complementary approaches to the dentistry, um, to generally the, uh, every kind of medicine, people are looking towards alternative, what alternatives are available. And what do you think about NHS, alternative to NHS dentistry? Do we have other therapies which can help people? It might be te- cheaper and affordable. Um, I think that's a difficult one because obviously the people that can afford it will go towards private, but I think the main issue is for patients who just don't have the facilities to be able to go towards private dentistry, especially because they do obviously have um, NHS dentistry, which is free for people on benefits if you're pregnant and under 18 or in full-time education, but after that it is just a lot more costly and expensive I think an alternative is difficult I think that's why they're trying so much pressure to kind of improve on the accessibility of just NHS dentists in general but um, I think the main alternative that people have thought of is just for them to change the way that they operate NHS dentistry and practices instead of doing um, instead of getting paying them with per unit of activity um, changing the way they fund the practices so that they're not kind of encouraged to just kind of get treatment done, but rather encourage them to focus on prevention and focus on other things and um, focus on accessibility to every patient so that they're not trying to just get treatment done and sell treatment to patients. So I think that would be the main alternative, yeah. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dania, for your, um, you know, in-detail answers and uh uh, I think that uh, there, it is. It is no doubt. It's multifactorial, and there is, uh, you know, somebody needs to look into it. Yeah, the contract needs renewal. More funding is needed, and uh, of course, preventive, uh, you know, dentistry is is the thing of the future, which we should uh, look into. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, hopefully, we'll see you again being a dentist with a uh, a lot richer dentist. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. So you were listening uh, to... Uh, one another guest who has spoken, Dr. Uh, going, going to be a Dr. Dania Bushra Chaudhary, who have discussed uh, and give us some, some insight that how uh, things are changing and what kind of uh, you know problems are there and how we can tackle them. We have discussed many things, uh, you know the the, the uh, you know different challenges. Uh, underscore the need of uh, critical assessment of the existing framework. And we've discussed the challenges confronting NHS dentistry are uh, multifaceted and ranging from different f- different issues of accessibility and quality. Uh, you know, moving on, I think it's time that our guests have uh, discussed the solution and uh, to to carry on addressing the challenges within NHS dentist- dentistry 
requires a comprehensive and uh, collaborative approach. Potential solutions include investment in technology, upgrading and uh, modernizing dental infrastructure with the integration of advanced technologies to enhance efficiency and the quality of dental services. Workforce development is very important, ensuring uh, ad adequately trained and skilled dental workforce to meet the growing demand for dental services and address uh, the evolving oral health needs of the population. Then is exploring sustainable financial models to support NHS dentistry, ensuring that it remains accessible and affordable for all citizens. And one of the most important things which our guest has spoken is public awareness, educating the people about the importance of oral health and preventive dental care to reduce the burden on emergency services and promote overall well-being. So the thing is that um, uh, no doubt, um, and as we have listened to our mm. guest today, that there is a need for a review of the energy services which are being provided uh, by the dentistry department. And um, uh, we have looked into the issues. We have looked into uh, the problems people are facing as well as uh, from the, um, the dentist's point of view. Where do they stand? Where do they, um, you know, um, everybody is trying to help. But the thing is that somebody needs to be uh, take to, to to take an action, and and that is the the government. The government needs to um, look into the, what is going on and be aware of that how people are suffering at the moment. And uh, NHS dentistry, like the water industry, faces a critical juncture where challenges must be addressed to secure its relevance and effectiveness. A collaborative effort involving policymakers dental professionals and the public is crucial to navigating the complexities of accessibility, quality and financial sustainability. Only through strategic reforms and a commitment to the oral health of the nation can NHS dentistry evolve to meet the needs of the present and future generations. The Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He stated that um, o Lord of people, grant relief from this illness, for you are the healer. There is no healing except that which comes from you, so grant complete healing without uh, leaving a trace of illness. That's a prayer you can always do, and that is one of the preventive things of you know becoming ill you can do is to pray to God because he, is the, he knows in what situation you are. He knows whether you can afford or not, so you, we can put forward to him all our needs and and one of the needs is to pray to him to to remain in good health to um uh, you know to, to not to suffer and uh, particularly in you know, the suffering of um, in pain particularly those who have gone through the dental treatments know how painful it is uh, despite you know you are getting an, an local anesthetics as well uh, and general anesthesia as well sometimes it's quite painful um, to um, to to get the dental extractions, dental procedures, and the even the anesthetic injections. Some people they develop like uh, an allergy. It's not even if it is not a real allergy, but they are so afraid of the pain they they are likely to suffer that they some some people they do they hate to go to the dentist and they avoid to the extent where the teeth they go. Um, as uh, you know, they, they become so diseased that they have to be taken out. 
the extraction. But but remember that extraction is the last resort, and they do try to save your teeth because they are not fond of uh, you know getting your teeth out. Uh, it is better to prevent um, to to go to that extent where you, your your teeth you have to lose your teeth because your teeth thirty two they are companions your companions and you don't want to depart any one of them. So take good care of them treat them you know as your friends and treat them individually as well because all of them they need attention even one of them if your gum is swollen you won't be able to eat and if you are not able to eat you can't you know you become useless because you you know if you don't have energy you can so so the teeth although it is apparently it just seems teeth but it is it involves your eating because you can't eat and when you can't eat it suffers you know the whole cycle of life suffers because of that. You become irritable because you haven't eaten. Your glucose levels fall, um, and, and so 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 I think it's, it's the whole lot. The dentistry is very very important, uh, and that is why they, the lot of stress was laid upon by the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And after that, following on you know his footsteps, his. Uh, a disciple and uh, his representative um, uh, in this era, who is Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, um, the uh, promised uh, Messiah and Imam Mahdi of the age, he also he he followed the footsteps of his master, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings Allah be upon him. He would also regularly, you know, brush his teeth. Not only that, he would uh, brush his teeth, but he would encourage his companions and sometimes he would offer them uh, you know the miswak which is uh, which is the raw form of the toothbrush which is uh, natural that you can uh, you can get a twig of a uh, branch of a tree and and you can just brush your teeth so how simple how it is it is and uh, every time when you are uh, preparing for your prayers um, you are if you can brush your teeth at least twice a day and properly then I, I think it you can keep your your uh, teeth healthy and you will not have to visit the the dentist so this is this is uh, the benefit of believing and following the true islam because it teaches you all aspects of life it brings you health it is through god and his attribute of being the healer that a remedy could prove effective Allah is the ultimate healer. We can get as many treatments as we want, but only if Allah wills, then we will be treated. Doctors, dentists are just a source of providing the healing. With that, I think we finish our, um, this part of our show, show the first hour, and uh, please join us in the, in the second hour where we will be discussing a very interesting topic, and that is man flu. No discrimination, but let, let's see what happens. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon on all our listeners. Welcome once again here in the Lifetime Show. After the news break, uh, we have discussed a very interesting topic in the first hour regarding dentistry the challenges NHS facing and how we can overcome those challenges. We had guests who have spoken on that topic. Now, in this hour, we'll be discussing another important topic, which is related with man flu. 
and the question is do men suffer more than women or not for this uh, we will be having guests who will be speaking a doctor who will be speaking on this particular topic and you can share your views as well by calling us on 0208-687-7878 i'll repeat the number once again it's 0208-687-7878 and you can tweet at word of islam uk as well moving back to the topic as you know we have two presenters here in the studio voice of islam myself and ikraman and dr tariq bajwa and as i mentioned we'll be discussing the man flu a term many of us have become familiar with over the last few years according to howard health the term man flu is defined as men exaggerating the severity of their symptoms quickly adopting a patient role needing to rely on uh, others to take care of them however recent studies hint at the possibility of men suffering respiratory viral illnesses differently from women it's interesting to note that islamic perspective on diseases is that in very reassuring manner that the holy prophet peace and blessing will be upon him is narrated to have said that there is no disease that allah has created except that he also has created its treatment so join us as we further discuss some facts about the men flu as well as the perspective what islam gives to us on sickness and health let's let's have a look at whether it is a it is a discrimination why man flu and not a woman flu mm. uh, whereas you know people think that you know women are usually weaker they are right. more likely to suffer and they are more likely to cry or uh, cry for help basically mm. or uh, mm. uh, you know, try to rely on others or, mm. or complaining about things but here it is it is opposite is uh, what they say is that uh, and that's i think this is a, a term of satire as well that you know it's a, it's a man flu man flu means that uh, there's somebody who is exaggerating some a man who is exaggerating the mm. severity of their symptoms quickly adopting a patient role needing to rely on others to take care of them i don't know what's the background but um, one thing can be that the men usually are dependent um, particularly um, you know on others their partner their maybe the the children who can do you know little things for them and uh, when they suffer from any illness normally they are working they are active they are hmm. they are they are not suffering because they are less likely to suffer amongst the, you know, the whole much. family but <laughs> once they suffer then they right. they need attention right. and this is also an attention seeking behavior as well <laughs> because uh, yeah, they they get a chance so that you know they can they can uh, they are not pretending of course mm. yeah, that's that's true because flu anyway um the thing is that they hardly ever get flu mm. it is a common cold but there is a huge difference between common cold and flu itself because flu will not um, and the flu will tell you that it is flu because mm. you're suffering very badly you've got muscular aches all over the body you have got high temperatures fever which is not coming down and um, it is is not simply uh, you know get away within couple of days you know it it takes at least 7 days to you know and it will make you weak it will make you feel um so the commonly what is happening is that people are suffering from common cold um all they need is um, a bit of rest some paracetamol for a few days to to uh, keep the temperature down which also helps with the muscular aches but 
they they start uh, complaining they they said i mean, I mean so, so that they can maybe it is attention seeking behavior but uh, definitely this is this term has evolved out of uh, you know there is a reason why it has been evolved mm. and for a long time the term man flu was coined for the single exaggeration exaggeration men do when they catch an illness such as flu or cold however looking at the facts a study shows that um, uh, which this study has supports that the female immune system might simply be stronger than males uh, isn't it um, strange that you know that uh, the female immune system is stronger potentially the reason for that is that they, they uh, have more estrogen and progesterone these are the female hormones and because of the levels of the estrogen and progesterone hormones which are higher and also at the same time they have lower levels of testosterone now the men who have the testosterone hormone um the testosterone has an opposite effect so rather than a protective effect which estrogen shows the protective effect against um the uh, the viruses um to encounter them uh, the testosterone it works as opposite because the high levels of testosterone actually also lower your immunity so uh, on one hand the women have the advantage that they have got estrogen which is protective which increases their immunity and on the other hand they have a lower level of testosterone which again um, increases their immunity and they are um, they are uh, better protected According to a study which was uh, published in the British Medical Journal PMJ relevant research for evidence suggested that man flu is real and could have an evolutionary basis so they are actually looking at the facts that it is it is something real they have um, um, experimented it they have studied um uh, the patients and and they've 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 reached a conclusion that it is something which is for real and there is a difference between the suffering of men and women further research points to differences in the way men and women respond to influenza influenza and flu is a short term for influenza so interestingly enough men are at a higher risk for influenza related hospital admissions and higher rates of influenza associated deaths than women in the same age groups regardless of underlying medical conditions now that is interesting you know these these mm. facts that uh, they have studied that men are more likely to get hospital admissions of course we are talking about here um, the people who are vulnerable people the people who are elderly as well so so in this these the elderly people have been included that they get more um, likely to get admission with the respiratory uh, infections um and they are more likely to be hospitalized whereas uh, the less women tend to go into the hospitals while they are suffering from the similar same medical condition uh, this could be explained with the levels of estrogen and testosterone present in the bodies of men and women again this is a point which we um, spoke about earlier that it's the level of uh, hormones which could be because that is the difference between you know what what makes you different a uh, man from a woman is these hormones so uh, so they say that uh, of course they have studied that whether this is there is a role of testosterone and estrogen and whether estrogen has a protective effect and a, and a lower testosterone level also have a positive effect on on the on women women have uh, higher levels of estrogen and low, lower levels of testosterone and men on the other hand had have higher levels of testosterone and lower levels of estrogen 
estrogen is immune boosting that means that it gives you you better protection whereas testosterone suppresses the immune system god almighty makes believers aware of these differences amongst men and women in the holy quran so the holy quran has clearly defined that uh, you know the men are made different from the women because of course they have a different responsibilities and accordingly they they have been given um you know certain uh, advantages or disadvantages you can say um that uh, both men and women have some special characters and you, they they are different from each other they are not exactly the similar so uh, the the holy quran states in chapter 30 verse 31 it says and follow the nature made by allah the nature in which he has created mankind there is no altering the creation of allah that is the right religion so god has created his mankind in a unique distinctive and perfect manner each being is molded respectively to fulfill its purpose and its duties so the men and women they have their different responsibilities and they they have been made accordingly mm. you know the children looking after children um it would be difficult for men and because they they don't have that kind of tolerance and forbearance you know which you you are required to mm. deal with a child uh to to remain quiet whereas uh, women are weaker to go out to work the physical work becomes difficult for them so they are basically they, it's a difference of creation and and that is accordingly they have been distributed the responsibilities and duties as well mm. and if you follow then of course you are better off Uh yes I think we've discussed this and you were much right most of the time when we hear that somebody has passed away and uh, as far as I can remember I can hear you know I've heard that many of the many of the male men people you know uh men died to the respiratory problems rather than women even in covid I don't know I I I knew so many people passed away and they had a severe infection in the respiratory system mm-hmm. and most of them were men of course for some yeah. reason yes yeah, and i think it's is somehow affecting uh, you know affecting more uh, on uh, on men rather than on women as you discuss everything but of course uh, we will carry on discussing this uh, topic we will having a guest as well a doctor who will be you know giving a more insight even though <laughs> one of the co-presenter of tariq bajwa himself uh, he's a doctor and a gp but you can also call us on 0208687 and share your views on this topic we're discussing man flu which is you know uh, more common in men than women so according to an article published in the frontiers this differences in immunity is rather helpful for the survival of human beings according to the article this distinction and advantage in women is beneficial to women who is as mother have responsibility to bear most vulnerable of the species of offspring and protect it from danger to accomplish this supreme mission additionally there is non genetic passive transfer of immunity from mother to offspring called transgenerational immune you know priming therefore priming therefore having the parental role may account for stronger immunity in females to defend and prepare for this responsibility and it is especially interesting to know that primary responsibilities of man and woman as laid out in the holy quran and in islam god in his 
infinite wisdom has created humanity in a wonderfully diverse and complementary manner men and women are diverse in their respective faculties and capacities in chapter 20 verse 51 of the holy quran god almighty states that our lord is he who have gave unto everything its proper form and then guided it to its proper function in islam it has been made clear that man and woman are equal in the sight of allah the almighty but in views of differences in their nature they have been assigned different roles for the smooth functioning of human society since women have the ability and privilege to bear and uh, nurture children god almighty has created them in a manner granting them the capability to carry out their duties in perfect manner all these recent scientific findings remind one of the promise of allah the almighty when he states in chapter 95 verse 5 of the holy quran that surely we have created men in the best make if we carry on in islam a believer is told that everything good and befalls a man is from god almighty sometimes we have to go difficulties and sometimes we ask why my why you know myself or somebody who was uh, you know my family member or one i loved and one of the thing you know dr talib bajwa i've seen even being an imam i was in north and a person came he was it was it was in in his 80s or 90s mm-hmm. and uh, his wife passed away for some mm-hmm. reason and he was asking a question to god why he has taken my wife mm-hmm. and islam was you know given us understanding yes your loved ones sometime you know you leave you but we need to understand they have gone to allah the almighty allah knows better and sometimes if things befalls like this we don't have to question god almighty we have to be you know remain steadfast and understand that the, the person is not gone somewhere uh, we, we don't know he's gone back to god almighty where he came from in, in chapter 26 of the holy quran verse 81 allah the almighty stay then when i am ill and one of the thing you know we, you need to impo- we need to understand that which the verse i'm going to recite to you sometimes we are ill sometimes we are in need again we need to pray to allah the almighty that 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 he give the you know or restore the health and that's what the holy quran says that if anything befalls on us if we are struggling if we are ill god almighty says that and when i am ill it is he who restores me to health so god almighty says in the holy quran that i am there for you you have to pray to me and i will be the one who will be giving you health and in line with another verse of the holy quran this verse remains constant with the idea that whatever evil befalls a man he is essentially responsible for it due to its specific law of nature god almighty being fountainhead of all grace should be regarded as the source of all good that befalls a man the believers are taught a prayer for good health through a narration of the holy quran a holy prophet peace and blessing of allah be upon him which is as following that o lord of people grant relief from his illness from this illness for you are the healer there is no healer except that which comes from you so grant so grant complete healing without leaving a trace of illness a very beautiful prayer prayer which we need to 
you know, think about it. I'll repeat once again that, O Lord of people, grant relief from this illness, for you are the healer. There is no healing except that which comes from you. So grant complete healing without leaving a trace of illness. And we need to pray this. Sometime, you know, we have to go through this thing. And, you know, the, 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 the topic we were discussing is the man flu sometimes gets very worse. And for that, we need to pray God Almighty and have a firm belief that God Almighty will give you health. One of the things, uh, Lord Baja, one once my mother was asked, a teacher, she used to go to college here uh, in Manchester. He was an atheist. Okay. So he said, okay, uh, my mother came back after five, six days. And uh, he said, okay, you were ill. He said, yes. So he said, where was your God? Mm-hmm. And my mother recited the same verse. And she said, suddenly came into my mind. I was thinking what to answer him. Mm-hmm. Because he questioned her God. Where was he? So she said that I was ill and he has given me or restored my health. Restored my health. So this is the thing I think we need to understand that God Almighty is there. When we pray to him, when we take the right medicine, as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessed be upon him, has mentioned, God has created the remedy for all illnesses if we take the right one. You know, God uh, restore our health and the means God has provided is very important for us to try. One of the duration I was reading of the second caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, he used to have a severe headache and he, he has tried all different remedies. He tried homeopathic, you know, allopathic and the other herbal medicines. And somebody asked him, why do you try keep trying different medicines? So he replied that there's a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that you know, a, 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 a restoring, or you know, a some how do how do you put it? That shifa, how, how can you put the shifa the cure. cure? Yes, cure. It can be in any medicine rather than maybe it's herbal or yeah, uh, you know in anything. anything. Yeah. So he tried every single thing. So when somebody is ill, sometimes the severity is, is is very much, and we can't really you know, think about anything else, then we should try different remedies which God has created there and we, sh- we should ha- we should not leave, uh, you know, believing on God Almighty. We should have faith in God Almighty that He Himself will, uh, you know, restore the health and we should be keep praying to Him and we see that believers who, you know, pray to God Almighty, God listens to them and, you know, give them a healthy life and a speedy recovery. So in um, uh, of course, I, mean, I was earlier talking about the researches they have done, whether this uh, man flu is it a real thing. Um, so I've, I've looked at an article which is in the which has been published in uh, BMJ, that's the British Medical Journal, mm-hmm. 2017, and uh, the writer um, is, is a lady who has who says that, you know, she. Um, um, studied this man flu because uh, you know she she thought that uh, this man flu is it is defined as a cold or similar minor ailment as experienced by a man who is regarded as exaggerating the severity of the symptoms. So since about half of the world's population is male, deeming male viral respiratory symptoms as as exaggerated without rigorous scientific evidence could have important implications for men, including insufficient provision of care. So despite the universally high incidence and prevalence of viral respiratory illnesses, no scientific review had been um, had examined whether the term man flu 
um, is appropriately defined or just an ingrained, uh, ingrained uh, pejorative term with no scientific basis. So, um, so, so what what she um, says is that she she searched available evidence to determine whether men really experience worse symptoms and whether the this could have an any evolutionary basis. So, according to her study, she says that. Uh, um, of course, the, the mice were taken as a good model, and uh, several studies showed that the female mice have higher immune responses than males, and this led to the hypothesis that sex-dependent hormones have an important role in the outcomes of influenza. Further studies suggest that estradiol, which is estrogen, is implicated in the response in mice, with one study concluding that the hormone reduces responses associated with immunopathology and enhances responses associated with the recruitment of innate immune cells into the lungs. So there is a particular, you know, there is a relationship. So man flu is not that it's, it's a men who are crying because it is a difference. The way they are suffering is, is uh, real and they should be uh, treated with the compassion rather than, you know, just uh, making fun of them. Of course, uh, in Islam, a believer is told that everything good that befalls a man is from God Almighty. And uh, um, in chapter 26, verse 81 of the Holy Quran, it states, And when I'm ill, it is he who restores me to health. And you just uh, narrated an anecdote where you know, your, your mother used the same verse, uh, telling somebody who asked a question whether when somebody was ill, where was your God? And she answered that uh, it is Allah who was with me and who has restored me my health. So, of course, uh, it is man because of his own fault, because of his own um, doings. Sometimes, you know, um, and uh, I remember another um, uh, another uh, hadith that's a tradition of the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, where he says that one does not get ill unless you know one eats seven times he uh, he exceeds the limit you know god has provided you up to seven times a limit where you will not get ill mm. but if you go beyond that of course it is your doing you will suffer because of that so that you have to keep in control and and just follow the rules of god almighty has said uh, and the basic rules are that you know eat and drink but do not um, exceed the limits because once you do that then you are you are in trouble and uh, I understand that we have got our first guest um, is Dr. Farooq Deen he's, he's a doctor and let's speak to him about the topic we are discussing that is man flu welcome uh, Farooq uh, to our show uh, thanks for coming and joining us today thanks for having me on the show so, Farooq, uh, to start off the first question, uh, could you please tell our listener what is the biggest reason for the difference between the male and female immune system? I think the main difference between the male and female immune systems are mainly dependent on hormonal influences. So there's different types of hormones which influence this, but the main two hormones which influence the difference in the male and female um, immune systems are estrogen and testosterone. So estrogen is more predominantly found in females and testosterone is more predominant in males. So how, how differently are men and women impacted by various illnesses? 
I think, you know, men and women are impacted by various illnesses due to many different factors, biological, mm-hmm. hormonal, genetic differences. So if you look at, for example, cardiovascular disease, for example, as a disease, men are often at much higher risk of developing heart diseases mm-hmm. uh, and more prone to heart attacks than compared to women. Whereas sometimes if you look at cancers, there's some cancers which are more common in men, some cancers which are more common in women. So there's all these different types of um, diseases where men and women are affected differently. Um, you can also think about how there's um, you know, neurological disorders sometimes, such as Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. Sometimes these are more affected by women just to do with life expectancy. So women tend to live longer. Therefore, these disorders and diseases are found in women more than they are found in men. Very much right. So for, from an expert uh, point of view, is it true that men suffer more when they are sick? Um, no, I think that's just, a, you know, a myth. Uh, hmm. The notion that men often suffer more sick is probably just cultural, but there's not much uh, scientific evidence behind it. I think potentially why people feel like this is because men sometimes don't communicate their symptoms until right at the end. So this is just, you know, men often you know, sort of get on with it. And sometimes women might be more likely to communicate their symptoms and seek medical attention, whereas data shows that men often present to hospital in later cases of illness than in comparison to their female counterparts. And I, I think also, you know, social and cultural influences play a big part in this. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a doctor, have you ever noticed that men flew among your patients? No, I, I mean... <laughs> I think um, man flu is, you know, just uh, a man exaggerates symptoms of a cold. But I mean, I don't think there's anything um, scientific about it. The term has come because, you know, men complain more about when they're sick, etc. So I think it's just a cultural stereotype and it's not a medically recognized condition. I think maybe, you know, men seek sympathy sometimes when they're ill, they're more vocal about it. Thus, like a joke has become of this man flu, but actually... There's no actual scientific evidence. It's just a simple common cold or common cough. It's nothing significant that just affects man. Mm-hmm. So we were, uh, you know, discussing that most of the time when we hear somebody has passed away, our man who's passed away through the respiratory problems, is it true? Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? You know, the, we were discussing about man passing away due to resp- respiratory or lung or you know the other diseases as we we're discussing or flu. So is it true that men are more, you've, dis, you've discussed a little bit, that men are more, you know, uh, vulnerable to the respiratory, to the respiratory um, problems or infections? Yeah, I think especially in cardiovascular disease, um, men are often at much higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease mm. in comparison to women. I think estrogen, there's been a link between estrogen and playing a, a protective factor for cardiovascular health and obviously men don't have the estrogen like females do that's one of the reasons um there's, there's a lot of other reasons as well but i think it's a, it's a very detailed discussion to go into um okay so um uh, definitely i mean is there a study which says that estrogen and testosterone they do impact on immunity um i i think that there, there are i don't have the study today but i mean testosterone definitely has immunosuppressive effects, whereas estrogen does play an enhanced immune response. So estrogen, you know, has been linked to an enhanced immune response in females. 
whereas testosterone in males has been linked to immunosuppressive effects. So that might be why um, men have a dampened immune response in compared to females. Yeah, of course. I think that um, the the fact that the the women they also, after their like menopause, when they stopped producing uh, estrogen, uh, or it is reduced significantly, then they they are their incidence of having a cardiovascular disease is equivalent to the, to to the men, isn't that? Yeah, I think that's correct. Um. So um. So the thing is that you know, so, so men have to be more careful than uh, you know, as regards you know, to to prevent or taking yeah, the, the mean, measures to prevent the infection. I think, I think in, I'm currently working in cardiology, and one of the main uh, things that cardiologists, as we preach to patients, is lifestyle and environmental risk factors in reducing your overall cardiovascular risk. I think it's underestimated, especially amongst um, South Asian population who'd be listening to the show the importance of, you know, making lifestyle changes, so regular exercise daily, half an hour to an hour a day of daily exercise, having a good balanced diet, um, you know, maintaining good overall health. These are such important things, not smoking, and, you know, drinking alcohol, etc. All of these things, if you put them together, they, they play an equal, if not a bigger role than medications to manage these problems. Uh, particularly a good sleep, good rest, and peace of mind. I think that's that's very important, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, you know six to eight hours a day minimum sleep and stress. They also have a significant impact, especially to men in cardiovascular disease. Sleep and stress are some factors which people call silent factors, where you you wouldn't automatically think that you know getting enough sleep or living a stressful life would increase your cardiovascular health risk for heart attacks, but it definitely does. But, you know, if you, if you look at the facts, uh, we have, uh, you know, of course, the developing, uh, the, the developed countries where we've got all sorts of facilities and it's the lifestyle, which um, you said that it's, it's like we, we are um, getting a better quality food. We have, uh, you know, the better financial circumstances. But having said that, if you look at uh, Africa, where people hardly find, you know, adequate food, um, uh, the incidence like for hypertension, um, they they have uh, like uh, malignant hypertension cases there where, where your blood pressure is uncontrollable. Why is that? Sorry, I missed the second part of the question. Um, the thing is that, uh, you know, the, in the cardiovascular diseases we are talking about, that mm-hmm. we, we, we do have them, uh, you know, and the, it is it is the highest uh, sort of killer in in these uh, in particularly for in UK, so but when we compare into the we are comparing the the poorer countries like for example in Africa, we still find that there is a high incidence of cardiovascular diseases. Uh, is there any explanation for that? I, I think um, the reasons behind you know malignant hypertension in any population are obviously multifactorial, but. Genetics play uh, a big part in these countries and also maybe limited access to healthcare. So I think, you know, the people in Africa and in the third world countries, because they have limited access to healthcare um, and socioeconomic factors aren't as good as those in developed countries, I feel like they'll present at a later time. And because of this, they're presenting at a later time, there's more damage done. So that's possibly why, you know, that could be one of the reasons why. It's not the only reason, but I think that's one of the reasons that comes straight to my head. 
Uh, yeah, because looking at that, you know, looking at them, they they do have enough of exercise. They don't have like very very rich, high cholesterol food there. Yet, you know, they, they do suffer. So yeah. So so it must be. Uh, uh, it must be. And obviously, I agree with this point. I think it must be a combination of genetics, which we we're not yet aware, or there's more research going on, and also the fact that um, you know limited access to healthcare. Um, yeah, earlier prevention, of course. I mean, you if you, if you you get the medicine, um, and many of them they are not able to afford the medication, so there is an interruption in the medication they take. Sometimes they're taking medicine for a short period, and then they they run out of the medication. They can't afford to have another um, lot, and then there is a break, and that's why that leads to sometimes stroke, sometimes complications re- relating to, you know, uh, because of the lack of medication available to them. And that's why they suffer to the complications. This, this is what I think. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd like to agree with that as well. I think that is one of the main reasons why. So obviously improving access to healthcare in these third world countries is one of the key things that we can do to help them. Right. As a doctor, you are exposed to many, you know, um, uh, infections and because you're dealing with the people who are suffering uh, in the hospital. How do you prevent? How do you, how you protect yourself? So for myself, how do I protect? How do I protect myself? Yeah. So obviously, being in cardiology, I try and take on board, you know, practice what you preach. So living an active lifestyle, trying to do at least one hour of cardiovascular exercise a day, Wonderful. be it a brisk walk, be it, um, going to the gym, eating a balanced diet. So I think as South Asian um, population, we tend to, you know, eat a lot of rice, eat a lot of bread, eat a lot of um, oily um, curry. But I try and, you know, limit myself to having a balanced intake and, you know, not having any saturated fats or many carbohydrates and just limiting my portion sizes. Oh, that's great. And what would be your message to our listeners today? I, I think the main message is, you know, we, we this is not just a male versus female risk factor. Illness can affect anyone, young, old, male, female. The main factor is, you know, we need to look after ourselves. We're nothing. We have all the living in the West. We have everything available to us to look after ourselves. We have access to healthcare. We have access to good food. We have access to clean water. All of these things are, are you know, people in the third world don't have access to. But we also have to take action. So you know, the most important thing is living a healthy lifestyle. Um, and the other thing I'd stress to our listeners is, if something isn't right or you don't feel correct, get it checked. Don't be that man or lady who sits at home and lets a problem prolong and prolong and prolong. So if you see a new lump, if you see a new rash, if you see some changes in your bowel habit or how many times you pass urine, if you see some bleeding from uh, areas of the body where it's not meant to be, get help. Often, you know, especially in South Asian culture, we get on with it, it'll get better. We have, we're blessed enough to have access to healthcare. We should seek the healthcare and get the help when we need it. That's great. Uh, Dr. Farooq Deen, thank you very much for joining the Voice of Islam uh, live time today, live drive time today, to show today. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank uh, you. It's, for a pleasure to, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye bye. So that was uh, Dr. Farooq Deen. Uh, he's a doctor working in the cardiology department at the moment. And uh, I think he gave a good advice, particularly mm. preventing. Um, taking the preventive measures where, uh, you know, you, you don't take care. And uh, 
uh, until you know you start suffering and then you go to the doctors and you start your medication and then it's very very difficult to come out because the more medicine you take the more side effects you get and the more likely you are to um, to continue suffering so it's better to prevent it um, uh, rather than you know you can take preventive measures rather and and just two principles which are given by the holy quran one is uh, eat and drink but do not exceed the limits and number two is that um, the whatever you eat uh, it should be one it should be halal what is for what is not forbidden which is allowed by the the holy quran and uh, which is tayyib halal and tayyiban that is one it is uh, allowed to and the second is that it's tayyib it's good for you and it's not going to cause any damaging effects on you for example somebody has an allergy to a particular um, uh, diet he should try to avoid that rather than you know trying it because um, he is likely to suffer it's not tayyib for him it's not good for him to to take something somebody is a diabetic he shouldn't be taking the sweets because it mm. is it's likely to enhance or increase the the illnesses or complications of the of the illnesses so try to to act uh, with wisdom which is the treat, which is the um, uh, instruction by the holy quran so if you come to god uh, he has given or he has provided all the um, framework where if you if you if you go and live your life accordingly you are likely to uh, to prevent many of the illnesses which you are likely to suffer otherwise uh, you are much right <coughs> dr tariq bajwa i think uh, one of the thing i've noticed in covid especially when we're wearing masks cleaning our hands washing hands regularly that you know people were getting less ill in those days and sometimes we do not really you know k- take care of these things again islam teaches to have uh, you know k- to, to have cleanliness and to wash your hands before you know eating or uh, you know uh, if you have done something if you have touched a surface i think again if one side is we have to you know make sure that uh, we have to protect ourselves we are going out we have to cover properly these are the measures we have to take to 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 protect what allah taala has given to us because health is a blessing from allah the almighty and we have to make sure that we are protecting rather than you know if you're going out without wearing proper clothes or as dr tariq bajwa mentioned not uh, you know eating excessively or eating something which is not right if you have you know it's a cold and you're having a cold drink of course at the end you will uh, you know gain the symptoms so you know in this world illness is a natural and normal component we cannot escape it however out of empathy god almighty has also bestowed us with means of uh, dealing with illness of all sorts and believers enjoys this as one of the many comforts of religion and prayer we might feel completely helpless and weak many times with certain illnesses especially the more painful ones while we might not be able to do many things when we are um, or a loved one has an illness prayer is something we can always turn to prayer during an illness not only provides our hearts with sense with a sense of comfort but also empowers us not only is prayer one of the most effective ways of experiencing the existence of higher being it also empowers us with the ability to make a change in moment of hardship the inability to do anything might lead to despair which makes it which makes it all the more difficult to deal with inevitable in such hard moments many believers find comfort in during in in turning to their creator 
and beseeching his help to get through the tough times of life. Much research has also discovered not only the positive correlation between prayers and patients' recovery, but also between prayer and reduced anxiety amongst family. This is fact correlates with the commandments of Allah the Almighty, commandments mentioned in the Holy Quran in chapter 2, verse 46, God Almighty states, and seek help with patience and prayer. And this indeed is hard except for the humble in spirit. So whenever we are seeking help, we have to be patient, we have to show uh, patience and we have to pray. And when we seek help with patience and prayer, that Allah the Almighty will truly help us in uh, whenever we are in need. And God Almighty has clearly mentioned that the people who are humble in spirit will definitely you know, do this and will seek help with patience and prayer. And if we do it definitely, you know, God helps those people who follow the commandment of Allah the Almighty. So, you know, such hardships are inevitable in everyone's life, but with the comfort brought by prayer can be very significant in an effective and positive outcome. However, all this is not all to say that Islam promotes giving up the resources available to mankind such as vaccinations or medications and to solely rely on gods to heal one. God, you know, explaining this, the fifth khalif of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may God be his helper, stated that there are illnesses which at one point seemed untreatable, yet now their treatment is seen as being very simple. Such progress should not lead one to think that God forbid human kind holds an equal share in the sovereignty of or attributes of Allah the Almighty. In fact, it is the favor of God that he has granted humans such intellect as to discover new treatments, after which God bestows his blessings and cures people through these treatments. Allah the Almighty alone is the healer. As the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing Allah be upon him, has said, the humans are compassionate. Thus, every researcher who, research, who, who searches for cure to illnesses, every doctor and healer should be compassionate to other human beings and their patients, and they should strive for the betterment of humanity. The key in dealing with illness should be the place of a trust in healing solely in God and use available resources to aid us in, in, in getting there. It is regarded that once when the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, fell ill, he summoned a renowned doctor to treat him. He paid the doctor's fare for travel, who traversed a long distance and arrived to tend to the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. Upon examining the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the doctor confidently announced that he would be able to treat and cure him in, more, in no more than two days. Hearing this, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, immediately stood up and left. He later, he later sent a note to his companion, His Holiness Mulvi Hakim Nuruddin, peace be upon him, that he no longer wish to be treated by this doctor. He said, Does this doctor claim to be God? 
Thus, the doctor was provided fare for his return, as well as additional amount for having undertaken the journey and was sent back. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, demonstrated to his followers his complete and pure trust in the attributes of God Almighty and not in anyone else. It's very important sometimes we use the means which God has provided, which God has created. As mentioned the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that God has created a cure for all kinds of illnesses. So if God has created that we can say that by the grace or by the help of God Almighty will this remedy would work and you will be recovered, rather than saying that I can give this medicine and within two days, you know, uh, I will make sure that you recover. So the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, by doing this, he has explained that all kind of help comes from Allah the Almighty. Allah the Almighty is the one who restored you from illness. So it is very important for us that we should have a complete and pure trust on Allah the Almighty and should pray to God Almighty by naming him through his attributes. In conclusion, God Almighty has created every being with a dis distinct purpose and in a perfect manner to be able to fulfill our purpose. God Almighty has created man and woman in ways which are beneficial to each. Women have been granted a stronger immunity in contrast to man due to hormones present in their body. The primary hormones that affects the immunity of both men and women are testosterone and oestrogen. Though we have to deal with the various illnesses and diseases in this life, we are also granted with means of coping and preserving through them. So, again, we have to make sure that we have to protect from all kind of, uh, you know, we have to take care of our uh, body and our health. We have to make sure that we, you know, clean or make sure we have cleanliness around us. We have to uh, wash our hands and try to n not to eat something which can harm you and make sure that we live a life which uh, keep us healthy. We had doctors in the first hour and in the second hour who discussed that how important it is to, uh, you know, uh, how, how important it is to clean yourself or the cleanness uh, is very important to be healthy. And it's very important for our listeners, especially who's listening uh, us today, that we clean ourselves on a regular basis. We have to protect and, you know, take the uh, those steps which, you know, uh, help us to uh, keep us away from, from uh, you know, getting any kind of illnesses. At the end, I would like to thank the producer of today's shows, Aisha Tahir, Tahmina Tahir, and Nadia Anwar, who has produced today's show, which was very important topics, and we have discussed that in depth. We had a guest who has discussed that in depth as well. I hope our listeners has benefited from the from, from today's discussion and at the end i would like to thank the technical team as well and our listeners who joined us and you know got benefit from today's show with this please join us again next time and to gain more information to gain more insight on different topics 
Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, peace and blessing will be upon you all.